Well, good morning, everyone. You can grab a seat. Good morning to all of you. It is so wonderful to have you here in the room with us. Good morning to you up there in the balcony. Thank you so much for being here, and all of you uh, gathering with us online as well. This is a, yet another variation of worship gatherings we're having, and uh, we're glad to do it. We're glad to have you all uh, in, in the room with us, but you online are still with us too, and we're, we're grateful. Well, today we be, begin a new sermon series in the book of Exodus. This is going to be a change of pace from what we've been doing in the Gospel of Luke. Exodus is certainly a different world, and it's even farther away removed from us than the first century Roman world of the Gospel of Luke. So you may be asking, why Exodus? Why on earth, for nine weeks, are we going to jump into the story of a small, oppressed group of people wandering around the wilderness in the ancient Near East? You might be thinking to yourself, and I would understand it, surely you could come up with something more applicable or helpful to tell me about uh, being, a 20, being in the year 2021 in Vancouver than this story in the book, the old book of Exodus. And I could understand that. Well, entering the story of Exodus is, I admit it, it's not as quickly applicable, it's not as easily understandable to our modern ears as the place where you all get your podcasts, as they say. But we'll hear God speak and act in, a ways, in ways here that may feel unfamiliar to us, because God is speaking and acting in a time and place that is very different from ours. This isn't a story that can be summed up neatly in three points. It's not a story that has clear-cut moral instructions. It's not a story like a fable with a neat and tidy summary. And this is exactly why we are going to Exodus now. Because of the story of the last year plus in our lives of COVID and all the ways that it's impacted our world cannot be summed up in three neat points. We can't draw clear-cut moral instructions from it. It's not a neat and tidy tale for anyone, is it? It certainly hasn't been for me. God has been present over the past year. I believe that. I know that. I've seen evidence of him at work. But it's not always been clear how, has it? Even not most of the time, it hasn't been clear how. At our vestry meeting back in February, I shared how God had given me this biblical theme of wilderness for this year, of Israel and the wilderness. And this story resonates with us now. I believe God really has things to show us here because it's gray and blurry in the wilderness. It's not always clear where you're going. It's not always clear how far you're going to be going for. And things are gray now, aren't they? There's, there's some changes. Uh, there's some hope that has come upon us recently. But things are still fuzzy. We're still having a very different worship service than we would in a different time. And there's no end date to the pandemic, is there? And I don't think there ever will be a day when we'll all look at each other clear-cut and say, okay, today is the day, it's over. Society has started slowly to move again, and a lot of things will return to normal functioning. But you, and me, and everyone, we've been through something really significant that is shaping our lives, and I think that we'll realize as years pass just how much it's shaped us. It's a wilderness, a place where things are not clear still, where things are fuzzy, and the horizon is gray, and, 
if you're like me, you've been asking a lot of times throughout this year, where is all this going? What's happening? Where is, all, where, where is all of this going is a question that Israel asked a lot in the wilderness. For not 15 months, like we've had it with the pandemic, but for 480 months, for 40 years. An entire generation of people's lives were lived in this, in this way, in this gray, wondering. Talk about a sense of lack of purpose for your life. It's been 40 years. But in the wilderness, we do encounter God in this story, and we see God delivering people, the Israelites, from oppression. He doesn't take them on a short journey to their destination, though we see this whole generation of people wandering around in disillusionment and failure and disobedience. But we also see God here giving daily bread, fighting for relationship when doubts set in. I've been there certainly recently, and encountering and encountering people with his real presence that sustains them. So we're entering this part of our story because we discover God here in the wilderness. So will you pray with me? Living God, will you come now? Will you speak afresh to your people out of, out of your holy book, out of your Bible? Will you open these words to us like never before? Come, living God. And be with us now in this room and open our eyes and our hearts to you to know you more deeply. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, we're going way back. It's the second century BC. Since the days when Joseph had ruled in Egypt and his father Jacob and all his brothers came down to be with him, their family has grown into a large people group in Egypt. Generations have passed, and the current Pharaoh believes that the Israelites in Egypt have grown too many to be trusted. They're too strong, and there's no goodwill left from Joseph's day. The Hebrew people are slaves now and nothing more. But the situation gets even worse. Pharaoh commands all of the Hebrew baby boys in the land to be killed, thrown into the Nile as a way of weakening the people. An ancient tragedy against children. But in this, God raises up a leader from one of these baby boys. His name is Moses. Moses is hidden for three months, then left for, in a basket in the Nile River, found by Pharaoh's daughter, and then raised as a son of Pharaoh in his house. We'll have to save all of Moses' backstory in chapters 2 to 4 for another day. It's a good story. But here's what happens. God hears the cry of his enslaved people. He remembers the promises he's made to their fathers. And God sends Moses to bring the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Chapters 4 to 11 tell this story of Moses and his brother Aaron having this epic face-off with Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. God sends all sorts of plagues on Egypt through Moses and Aaron, showing that, that their God, that Yahweh, is truly God and not the gods of Egypt. Ra and Osiris and Isis, they're not gods at all. But none of these things convince Pharaoh. Amazingly, the darkness, loss of crops, the Nile turned to blood, the livestock wiped out, all sorts of things, the gnats. But eventually it becomes clear only one thing is going to crack, the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. The tenth plague comes. God directs each Israelite household to take a lamb or a goat to slaughter it without blemish, and they'll take the blood and they'll spread it on their doorposts. And then they'll eat it that night 
This becomes the Passover meal. It's a sacred meal still kept by Jews today that remember God's deliverance. This is what it looks like. God says in Exodus 12, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land in Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Deliverance comes, but at the cost of bloodshed. All the firstborn that are not marked, all the houses that are not marked by blood, the firstborn perish. The reality here is is stark. Egyptian blood is shed to bring about Israel's deliverance. And God commands Israel to keep an annual somber remembrance of this event. They must always remember that they were bought at a price. One commentator, Terence Fretheim, calls the deaths of the firstborn in Egypt and the salvation of God's people, his firstborn, the burning center of the Passover memory. This memory becomes part of Israel, this burning center. They're a saved people, the people who God brought out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is who they are. And the burning memory comes at the outset of their journey into the wilderness. It's their last memory of Egypt, a memory Jews still commemorate today. And in our passage, we'll see that this burning memory of God's rescue is meant to sustain Israel in the wilderness, in their time wandering. So here's our main idea. The burning memory of God's love sustains us. The burning memory of God's love sustains us too. So we'll look first at how Israel was supposed to remember And then second, why remembering matters. But first, how? How was Israel supposed to remember? God gives them very two tangible ways in chapter 13, which we just read. Their kids and their calendar. Their kids and their calendar. That's how they're supposed to remember. First, the kids. There's lots of kids here today. It's wonderful. Kids are great memory pegs because it's really hard to forget them, isn't it? They make themselves known. In chapter 13, uh, verse 2, God says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, man or beast, is mine. He expands on this in verses 12 to 16. What's it all about? There's two things going on with this. First, it's about remembering God as their creator, as the giver of all life. They give back the firstborn livestock, the firstborn of their crops, the firstborn of their children as a way to say, thank you. God, it's all yours. Kind of like how we tithe. And it was a practical way in later years as generations passed for the community to give and to bless others through tithing. It looked like Mary and Joseph in Luke chapter 2 going to the temple to present offerings for their firstborn baby boy, Jesus. But there's a second thing going on. Consecrating the firstborn ties Israel to their memory of salvation, too, to this Passover story. Listen to verses 14 uh, to 16 again. 
And when, in and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of man and of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Moses explains what to do when your son asks you about this consecration practice. And this is an act of remembrance. The people were freed from slavery here. They were freed. But there was a somber remembrance as well of the loss of the Egyptian blood that was spilled on their behalf. They have to remember it. Well, God gives them another way to remember as well. First, their kids, but also their calendar. Every year, they must remember this Passover with a, a week-long memorial called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Moses describes this feast and what it's meant to look like in verses 3 to 6. Moses says to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you're going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, you hear that list a lot in Exodus, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh there shall be a feast to the Lord. A seven-day remembrance every year to eat unleavened bread, to remember chains of slavery, to walk through the story of salvation, to know that they are a saved people and they belong to God. But the calendar is also a way to help the kids learn what's going on too, to pass it on. Verses 8 through 10 uh, say this, you shall tell your son on that day, it's because of what the Lord has done for us that we came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute year by year. So the feast is a way to pass on the memory to those kids who themselves were marked by God's salvation, who were redeemed. They have to be taught whose they are too. It's not just automatic. They have to be taught, and this feast is a way of teaching it. They have to know why it matters. We have that responsibility too. Verse 9 shows us how tangible this memory is meant to be, like a sign on their hands, like a, like a living memory on their heads, that the word of God will always be in their mouth. It's very physical. It's a living memory, and it's supposed to remain on them and shape their words and actions all the time. Later generations of Jews, and some even today, still wear something called phylacteries. They're little leather boxes that they would tie on their heads and also on their left forearm, and on strips of paper inside would this passage be written. This was a long way before the 90s when someone came up with the WWJD bracelet, but there's some similarity there. The point is for the memory to become their identity. The point is that this memory is ingrained so that it becomes their identity. 
That's how important it is. God has woven it into their lives. This memory will be with you on your crops, on your livestock, on your firstborn children. Every passing year at the Passover, you must remember. God wants to sear it into their way of being. But now why? Why is it so important? Why why does God go through all of this to make sure they don't forget? There's two reasons. The first is that memories do become identities. They do. Richard Schwartz, who's the father of internal family systems theory, says this. Kids have the developmental tendency to take experience and turn it into identity. To take experience and turn it into identity. Memories become a part of us. They shape how we think about ourselves and about God. They do. And what we remember creates the landscape in our hearts and our minds that our thoughts roam around on, which makes a big difference, especially in the wilderness. When things are hard, when things are bleak and gray, and when self-doubt hits you, when fear hits you, when grief comes, it matters what we remember. And for better or for worse, these memories that we have, all of us in our lives, they, they come a part of us. They become part of our identity. I'm sure you have painful memories that have become a part of your identity, have come a part of the way you think. And I know you have beautiful ones too that also have become a part of you. We all do. And this is why remembering God's story and God's words, God's salvation matters so much. It becomes a part of you. But there's a second reason too. And it's this, the wilderness is coming. For Israel, they were on the brink of it. But the wilderness is coming and the temptation to forget these things will be strong. It will be. The conversation God has with Moses and the people happens, as verse 20 says, on the edge of the wilderness. And they're going to need to remember whose they are. God's saying, wilderness is ahead of you. It's bleak. There's going to be a lot required of you. More than you can handle. Truly, more than you can handle is coming. Do you ever feel that way? Like what you're up against? Like what's given you week in, week out is more than you can handle? I certainly do. And it's true. The memory of God must be kept alive in times of wilderness because the wilderness is brutal. The challenges you face are at times more than you can handle. It's true. Living alone through a pandemic, raising kids and keep, keeping jobs going, health crises, dealing with all the uncertainty and the loss and disappointments over and over again, being estranged from family. Friends, it's absolutely more than you or I can handle. And without the burning memory of God inside of us, sustaining us, holding us, you might not make it through with faith without that memory. Someone recently wrote to me and she said, it feels like there's just so much suffering right now in the world and there's no end in sight. I got that note and you know what? She was right. But the truth is that when we face the darkness in the world, the stark realities, this is always the case in corners of our world. And we must remember because when we enter this darkness that is there, 
The memories that have become our identities will dictate how we respond and how we live. Do we live like people who belong to God, who witness to a crucified Lord who can handle the suffering? Do we live like that? A crucified Lord who shed his own blood, his own body for the life of the world? Or do other memories come out and shape us and define us? Take us into dangerous territory? Do we, do we escape into other darker ones and live from there? It's a temptation. I feel it too. When grief hits, when pressure or stress weigh down on your shoulders, when the ambient anxiety of the pandemic world around us takes hold of your body and your soul, the temptation to forget and lay aside the memory of God, of who you belong to, that you belong to Jesus, it's strong, isn't it? Because we can't enjoy those dark memories when the, temptation, when, when the, when the memory of God is before us. We can't wallow in our self-pity. We can't go down into sinful indulgence when we find ourselves living in the memory of God's love. It holds us and protects us. And here's an example. In in a 2017 article, Russell Moore, he wrote that marital infidelity, it most often takes place because of this, because of of a loss of memory. He says it's a decision to lay aside the memory of God and in our hearts live in a wondering nostalgia. He writes this, the person who cheats is often looking to reconnect with the person he or she once was before the daily responsibility of working a job or maintaining a household. This is especially true in the era of social media, where so often affairs begin by checking in on someone from high school or college or a previous workplace. The issue is not so much that the person is pining for this old connection, as much as the person is pining to be the person, again, that the old connection once knew. The question is, am I still the person I was back then? He goes on, the devil knows the way to take one down is is not through a deficient spouse, but through a deficient self. Sometimes when we seek the gaze of another, it's not our partner we are turning away from, but the person we have become. Esther Patel writes, a marriage therapist he's drawing on. We are not looking for another love so much as another version of ourselves. Escapism into one of these dark nostalgias is a real temptation in the wilderness. Whether the wilderness is the pandemic world and life that's hit you hard, or whether it's just dissatisfaction in some way for how life has turned out. This example shows us something else Israel learned in the wilderness about their memory. It's another topic we'll explore later on, and it's this, memory is about worship, too. When we refuse to remember God, when we lay aside the memory of God, we go to another altar to worship. And there's plenty of altars to worship all around. So we're called here to hang on to the memory of God's love in the wilderness. Because it's upon us, isn't it? And it's brutal. We're in it, and temptation is always right near. And because the memories we choose to live from form our identity, they help shape who we are, for good or for bad. 
the ways God gives Israel to remember in this story, in the Exodus story, they help us to know what to make of this and what to do with it. It was a long time ago, but they help us too. We're also invited to keep alive the memories of God in our lives by talking about them, by telling our kids, yes, but also telling each other. Especially in the wilderness, telling our stories passes on hope. Hearing the stories about how God is active in your life and someone else's life, it passes on hope. My wife Deanna and I do this on Friday nights with some others, and it's simple, a simple question. Where do you remember God and your week? The practice of being asked give, gives me better eyes to see it. It's, it's helped us see it. A few weeks ago, Deanna said she couldn't remember where she'd seen God in her week at all. And so she prayed and said, God, I haven't seen you this week. Where have you been? And you know what? He answered that prayer. He brought to her mind several moments where she was able to engage with our neighbors and show them God's love. The practice of being asked and asking others helps us remember. Hearing other stories from, from our friends, from our community, gives hope too. And the stories themselves matter, but even more than the stories themselves, you might not remember individual stories that your friends tell you. You might, and they're wonderful and beautiful, but carrying on the memory that these people also live in the presence of God, that they experience him, sticks with you even more. And it gives you hope that you're living in a company of people, that we're in a company of people who are also attentive to God in our lives, that we're not alone, that he's alive here. Knowing that lifts us through. So tell the stories for your sake first but for the kids' sake and your community's sake, too. But as Israel also had a calendar and practices to remember the Passover, we also need to remember God's salvation over each of us. We've just come through the Easter season. It's also the Passover season, and that isn't a coincidence. Jesus was a Jewish teacher, and he chose the Passover as his time to die, to cover wooden beams with his own blood, to become the once-for-all Passover lamb, slain to redeem you and me from death. Jesus took that burning memory that the Jews lived with of God's rescue from Egypt. He took it, the memory that they had that marked them out as God's own. And on the night that the Passover lambs were slain, he gave them, Luke tells us, a new meal, a new meal to remember by. He shared a cup, he shared bread, and he proclaimed that it is now his body and his blood poured out that will bring rescue from bondage. That will give them a new story to live by. That will give them a new identity to live into. And the new identity is a home in scars and wounds. The story is one of a cross. And this is why we gather around a communion table week after week. And we get to do it today together. And that's a joy. This table was created by Jesus, instituted by him. He's the host. It's an act of remembering him, our life in him. And it's, this is why we worship and read scripture and visit our story week after week, why we go back to old stories like the Exodus year after year, because by keeping the burning memory of Jesus alive and fresh in our hearts, the Holy Spirit sustains us, even when we do forget, through wilderness, even the wilderness of death. So does this burning memory live in you? 
Do you feel it burn? Let's pray and ask God to reignite that with us today if it doesn't. Let's pray. Will you pray with me?